Hi, everybody. It's Modi uh, here on And Here's Modi. And uh, we have a very special guest uh, today, Alan Dershowitz. Um, the program is sponsored by Wheelchair.com, featuring the feather chair, the lightest wheelchair that has ever been made. Uh, definitely take a look at if you or somebody in your family has a need for a wheelchair. A wheelchair. Um, and uh, again, we're looking forward for Alan Dershowitz today. Everybody, um, I guess I guess during Passover I found the afikomen. <laughs> I found the afikomen because as a gift I got to to do a podcast with uh, Alan Dershowitz, and I thank you very much, Perry, for setting this up. My pleasure. Thank you, Professor Dershowitz. Uh, Alan, no, right? You prefer Alan? Well, this is the first time I've been an op, uh, 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 an afikomen prize. <laughs> <Do> you- <laughs> <laughs> things. Okay, right? so uh, you you said you prefer we call you Alan. I don't want to be chutzpah dick. Yeah. Okay. How was your Passover? It was great. Um, you know, got through it without any bread at all. Attempted a few times, but never succumbed. Good. We had a beautiful seder just with my family, uh, one by Zoom in California. The rest there presently and as usual we thought about everything every possible thing <laughs> we thought about we had the forty thousand questions seder do you really like uh, get into every paragraph and think of why did rabbi Eliezer ben elazar do this and was he really did he really mean to do to pray before sunset is and that why why is somebody famous just for coming up with a couple of initials and acronyms <laughs> Uh, for the various things. You know, he's famous. Anybody get to figure that out? Why does he into the Haggadah? And, you know, God, uh, you know, Moses is not even in the Haggadah. But this rabbi who came up with Tzitzach and Kafan and all that, he gets in the Haggadah, but uh, Moses doesn't even make the cut. Well, those acronyms are very big. There's a very spiritual connection to those. Like, like when, when we when you say the Anna Bekoch prayer, there's a yeah. big prayer Anna Bekoch. It's a three. It's a seven line prayer, and the the acronyms of that are more powerful than the actual prayer. It's a very kabbalistic thing. It's amazing that that's the first thing we speak about during Passover is that is those acronyms. But those are huge. Those are huge, and he's famous because he came up with them. Good, good for him. Yeah, but anybody could have come up with them. You know, seven years <laughs> anybody. first letter of every word, it's not anything creative. But that's what Kabbalah is all about. Next time I pass the Kabbalah Center in New York, I'm going to look askance. That Kabbalah must be more than just initials. Okay. <laughs> but wait a second. My mom told me that when I was five, she took me to the MoMA and I looked at a Jackson Pollock and I said, I could have done that. So maybe, you know, you have to come up with the acronyms, even though Pollock was the one who threw the pain. He still came up with the idea. Hey, Jackson was a great painter <laughs> through the paint. Uh, he did it in a very systematic way. You know, I went to Brooklyn College at a time when the art department at Brooklyn College was the best in the world. Um, um, it, uh, Jackson Pollock, he died in my second year 
in college, but he used to come there all the time. And wow. uh, very, very famous people uh, were at the Brooklyn College Art Department. And in those days, you could buy a Jackson Pollock for you know a couple of thousand dollars. And uh, you can buy other famous painters for a couple of thousand bucks. Now they're a couple of hundred million bucks. So wow. uh, mm. things changed. Yeah. And, and the letters in the Haggadah are for free. <laughs> the whole Haggadah costs $12 maybe. The Maxwell House Haggadah. Exactly. By the way, you can count if it's not the Maxwell House Haggadah. That has to be the way you do it to remind you of the old days of Maxwell House Haggadah. It's funny you say that because recently I found a picture of me um, in a suit when I was maybe 15 years old at a Seder holding up the Maxwell House Haggadah. <laughs> we all had it and everybody still uh, was commenting, we still have that Haggadah, we still have that Haggadah. All the wine stains on it, the, the wine stains going back generations because you can't have a Seder without spilling wine. You know, there's a famous story of a rabbi who invited a prominent political figure to a Seder and the political figure uh, accidentally spilled a little of the wine on the table. Then the rabbi spilled the wine on the table and said to the prominent figure, how did you know that it was our tradition to spill wine on the table to make right. it feel <laughs> This is a... I'll tell you a wonderful uh, Pesach story. So one year when we were doing our big Siddharam uh, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, we used to have 75 students, faculty members come to the Seder. One year, a friend of mine brought to the Seder Anwar Sadat's daughter, uh, Kamala Sadat, shortly after the Camp David Accords were filed and as, as a guest. So I took her aside before we started the Seder and I said, you know, Kamala, uh, uh, you know, you don't, you've never been to a Seder, right? No. She said, you guys don't come out so good on this Seder. Uh, 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 <laughs> and she said, no, no, you don't understand. We're Muslims. We're on the Jewish side. We were, we root for God. We root for Moses. We're against Pharaoh. We're not Pharaonic Egyptians. We're Muslim Egyptians. And she participated fully in the Seder. And it was wonderful. It, that's amazing. It's an amazing story. Th that rabbi you're talking about the spilling of the wine, that's the Baal Shem Tov. That's a very famous story. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. very famous story. So let me ask you a question. My, I mean, I, I was putting together what thoughts I had for you. So, you know, people always tell me, and I, and I am, I'm a Jewish comedian. You know, there's, there's comedians who are Jews, like Jerry Seinfeld. Well, well, is, is why it? do you have to add the word comedian? If you're Jewish, you're a comedian. And well, if you're a comedian, you're probably Jewish. So <laughs> redundant to say Jewish comedian. Okay, so you probably have not seen my act. Uh, not yet. Okay, so there you go. Trust me, I'm a Jewish comedian. Okay. Right. And, uh, and, you know, even though when you Google you, the first thing comes up, American lawyer. But I see you as a Jewish lawyer. No, I am a Jewish lawyer. There's no doubt. I could not be the lawyer I am without being uh, Jewish. And and the issue now is, can you in America be a comedian anymore? Or are you too subject to cancel culture? And can you be a lawyer anymore? I have a new book coming out called The Price of Principle, where I argue that you can't be a lawyer anymore. You can't be Clarence Darrow. You can't be uh, uh, Daniel Webster. You can't be Thurgood Marshall. Because you're going to get canceled. People cancel you if they don't like who you uh, defended. And people cancel you if you're a comedian and you offend anybody. The job of a comedian is to offend everybody. Correct. So, well, you mentioned all those names, but you're one of them as well. You are, you, you, I guess you, you, you can't be Alan Dershowitz anymore. You can't well, be an Alan Dershowitz. 
That's why I wrote the book, Christ's Principle. I've been canceled. Do you know that Temple Emmanuel, the largest reformed temple, the most impressive reformed temple in the world, has canceled me and won't allow me to speak there? For years, I used to do the trials of the Bible. I defended Noah. I defended David. Canceled. Canceled completely. I never can set foot again in Temple Emmanuel. The 92nd Street Y, canceled. Uh, Ramaz High School, canceled. So, you know, people say, I, I don't say this about myself, but people say this about me, that I'm the primary defender of Israel in the court of public opinion. But I've been canceled by the Jewish community. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's very hard to be somebody who's as controversial as I am, even if you support Israel and support uh, great American values. But I would focus on the places that adore you, that love you, the places that, that look at you as a hero of Jewish of a Jewish advocacy as a Jewish lawyer, uh, they might be a little bit more religious places than uh, Temple Emmanuel, but you are adored, loved, uh, uh, f- not feared, but like you are, you're Alan Dershowitz. You are Alan Dershowitz. I got to tell you, first of all, uh, uh, the original Alan Dershowitz for me is – in 1990, when I my, my first Ron Silver will always be Alan Dershowitz to me. No matter how you look, no matter what you, if anybody, if if they say the word Alan Dershowitz, the first thing that pops in my head is Ron Silver. Well, Ron Silver used to get letters after he played me for inmate on death row, saying, "Please defend me, Ron." Ron would say, "No, I'm Dershowitz. I'm Ron Silver." And they would say, well, defend me anyway. You're so good. <laughs> He's so good. He was so good. It was 1990. I was at Boston University. I remember that the movie played in a movie theater on campus where we, um, where one of my classes was. Massive screen. And this came on and I loved the, the story and I loved the movie and I loved him. I go, wow, that's Alan Durge. How but, close, well, how close yeah. to reality was that movie to you? It was very real, except I'm a much, much better basketball player than he was. He <laughs> was dribbling around endlessly with no purpose. I always dribbled toward the hoop and got the basket. So I was upset at uh, at Ron's basketball lack of talent. But uh, but look, uh, Larry Bird wouldn't play me. So what can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> you, you and I did an event. The name of this podcast is And Here's Modi, which is one of the reasons of that is from an event that you and I were were at together. And I, I always told you guys, uh, there's nothing more amazing than when, I, when I'm at an event and there's the chief rabbi of Israel, Alan Dershowitz, uh, some other huge and, – and comedian Modi. You know, and that's I love, you and I were at an event for uh, a Holocaust museum called uh, the Museum of Faith. I don't know if you remember this at the Pierre Hotel, and um, it, it's a Holocaust museum that's focused on the the survivors' stories of how they what got them through their. Th- I do remember it? Yeah, no, that was uh, that was remarkable, and like so many other Jews, I have so many relatives who. Uh, didn't make it through the Holocaust. You know, if my grandparents hadn't come over here from a small town in Poland, um, none of us would have been alive. Um, I lost a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old cousin and many, many, many people. So, uh, and those who survived, 
faith was a very important part of uh, how they survived. So told the stories of how the people, what got them through, what thoughts get the, got them through day by day. And I remember, you know, and always, always before I go on, some crazy story always happens. So you spoke, you were amazing, you were inspirational. Then Cantor Health got sang, and it was wonderful and beautiful. And then some guy came on and told his story, how he, how in the camps, the way you killed yourself was you ran towards the, the fence. Yeah. Yeah. And you jumped on the fence. And while he was running, he hears somebody singing Ma'oz Tzur, which is a song of Hanukkah. Yeah. And he realized it was Hanukkah and stopped running towards the fence. Uh, then the amazing. woman, then the woman came, then he just got off. And then the woman said, and now here's Modi. <laughs> Literally. Perfect. And especially following Health God. Health God is the greatest, uh, chazan in modern times. You know, I was a choir boy. I sang in the choir of Beryl Chagi and Moshe Kusevisky. Wow. And family of Chazanim. My grandfather was a Chazan. My grandfather on the other side was a Baltfila. And I can still... So I sang with Health God um, once at a... Um, at a, uh, I can't remember, it was a Sukkot dinner, I think, or Shmini Atzeris dinner. And I had the honor of singing with him, Shiabana Beis Amigdash, which wow. was, of course, Kusevitsky's signature song. In fact, I made a mistake. I was on a QXR radio program, and they asked me for my favorite music. And so I played a piece by Pavarotti, and then I played a piece by Kusevitsky. And I said, Kusevitsky wrote Shiabana Beis Amigdash. Oy, the next day, I got a letter from the Shore family that Shayabana uh, Basin Mikdash was written by a guy named Shore, and I had to apologize. And uh, uh, but I always associated it with Kusevitsky. Okay, first of all, Shayabana Basin Mikdash was written by uh, whoever wrote the sitter. The nigun, the tune, was written by Shore. Kusevitsky wrote Akavia, which was Akavia Benamale Mevet. That right? Al Shlosha Devarim Olamam. Amazing. I, I'm singing with Alan Dirge, but I, I knew I would never get to any of these questions. <laughs> I knew it. We should do a duet together sometime. That's it. Halel as a duet. Now, Akavia, he should be famous because the song is so brilliantly written, not only musically, but the words, you know, remember before who you stand. Um, you... Yeah. You know, it's, it's a profound song. In fact, um, in my list of things to be done at my funeral, which unfortunately I will miss because I won't be there, <laughs> but I would enjoy very much if at my funeral, Health God sings a Kavya Bemahalala. That would be a great honor, a posthumous honor for me. Is there something I can do at the funeral? Is there a joke you want to be told that... <laughs> Love jokes at my funeral. Okay, so they have to be good jokes. They really have to be good jokes. So uh, I don't like bad jokes. I'm, I'm going to send you a list of jokes, <laughs> and you tell me which ones you want me to say at your funeral. Okay. By the way, you're not the first one to ask me to perform at their funeral. <laughs> I have this. There's a guy in Long Island who one of his things is when I die, I don't want all the hespeds or the eulogies. I want jokes and I want Modi. Um, so. You should advertise that. Uh, <laughs> you should. That's a great idea. For hire, 
uh, pay me only after you die. You know, you can make it uh, suitable. Uh, okay, so you're hired. You're hired for me. I'm hired for you. Okay, I'm putting that. I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. So it sounds like you know you you love humor. You you love laughing. And I tell jokes in court. I used to tell it in the classroom. Today, of course, when you tell it in the classroom, you're fired. So I won a big case once telling a Jewish joke. So I'll tell you the Jewish joke. It's not such a great joke, but I won the case. So the chief judge, who was a very waspy, very uptight guy, uh, argued with me because I didn't want a certain movie to be banned. It was called I Am Curious Yellow. It was a Swedish movie. And uh, he said, but what if somebody walks into the movie by mistake, like my grandmother uh, once did to a dirty movie. And I said, there's an old joke about this Jewish guy walking around in the countryside in Europe and his watch breaks. He goes into the first town and he sees a store with watches and clocks in the window. And he says, mister, can you fix my watch? The guy says, fix your watch. I don't fix watches. I'm a mile. I do circumcisions. And the guy says, you're a mile. Why do you have watches and clocks in the window? To which he responds, what do you want? I should put in the window. So... <laughs> And the chief judge ruled in favor of me. And then this very waspy chief judge went around telling that joke to people, to his fellow wasps. So I got my jokes communicated to a different culture. That's amazing. That's amazing. Have you ever taken on – so, you know, I, I take on shows sometimes. Um, I get hired for a show and I get – and while I'm – I figure I have a bad feeling like it's not the right thing. I shouldn't have taken this gig. It wasn't set up right. It wasn't worth the money. And then something happens afterwards that um, I get an email from somebody or a, or a DM saying, you know, my grandma was at the show. She's been very sick. It's the first time she's laughed for a year. And it, it makes me feel really good. It makes me feel like yeah, there was a – even though while I was in it and thinking this was the wrong thing to do, there was a right reason to do it. There was a, there was a, a hidden reason. Have you ever taken on a, a case and, and you really thought it was a bad decision and then you saw some light out of it? I haven't seen the light yet, but uh, I did take some very bad cases. Obviously, the Jeffrey Epstein case was the worst one I took because as a result, a woman who I never met, never heard of, accused me of having sex with her when she was like 17 or 18. I disproved it. I have a tape of her admitting that she never uh, met me. And, you know, but still, I wish I hadn't taken that case. So I would like to see the light emerge uh, from that case. Maybe it will be before you perform at my funeral. That's the key. Uh, to make sure that I get completely vindicated and she admits she made up the story before you have to perform. It's it's an amazing thing. Like, you know, when you think of your history and when we, we asked people, um, what question should I ask Alan Dershowitz? I'm having him on the podcast tomorrow. I mean, they were huge fans of yours. My, my fan and your fan base are, they're, they're very, very similar. But the Epstein thing came up and, you know, and I didn't want to ask directly, but it's like, there, there has to be a reason for for what that the, that that happened. It had to be a reason. Well, it's an interesting thing. You know, I met Epstein through the Lady Rothschild, a very prominent woman who was, you know, married to the Lord Rothschild, and she begged me to meet Epstein because he was contributing thirty million dollars to Harvard. So <laughs> I met him, and then I became kind of an academic acquaintance of his. We would go to sessions together, but I never met any young people or anything like that. And then I represented him as a lawyer. But uh, nonetheless, 
uh, people schmutz me up with Epstein. I have nothing in common with Epstein any more than I do with O.J. Simpson or with, um, you know, Leona Helmsley or uh, there are very few clients who I identify with. I identify very closely with Natan Sharansky and we've remained close friends. But most of my clients I don't identify with and uh, I don't like uh, particularly. It's like a doctor in the emergency ward. You do you have to do. That's your job. Sedek, Sedek, Tirdof, you have to do justice. Uh, and it says in the same Parsha, lo takir panim, do not recognize faces. You know, a judge is told two things. Don't take bribes and don't recognize faces. But the don't recognize faces comes before don't take bribes. And it's my bar mitzvah said, your shoftim. Shoftim. So that was one of the few things I did well as a kid. Um, I lane the whole Sedra very, very well when I was 13 years old. And it's amazing that the connection, the Lotakia Panim is in there. And that's your, uh, and that you have a connection to that. It's amazing. So, okay, something else I always talk about in my act is anti-Semitism. I bring, you know, I make it into jokes and all of that. And first of all, you, you, you were the youngest person hired by by Harvard to to teach, right? I was when they weren't hiring very many Jews, and they mm. still had quotas in many, many universities uh, against uh, Jews. And I threatened to quit Harvard after I got tenure if they wouldn't consider a Jew for dean. I didn't want to be dean, but there were others. Uh, and for years, Harvard never had a Jewish dean. And I threatened to quit. I said, if a Jew is not good enough to be dean, this Jew is not going to be good enough to be on the faculty. But then they started hiring Jewish deans, so I stayed on the Harvard faculty for 50 years. For 50 years. And let me ask you, how did the anti-Semitism change at Harvard from when you – during those 50 years, what was the progression or, or degression or how did anti-Semitism change at Harvard? And, you know, you're the first person to ask me that question, and it's an absolute brilliant question, and it requires a, a serious answer. So when I came there, there was social anti-Semitism. That is, from the top down, the kind of waspy, old-fashioned Brahmin faculty, you know, it's okay to have a Jewish faculty member, but we're not having him for dinner, and we're certainly not going to associate with him uh, privately. So there was that kind of anti-Semitism. We're not going to have a Jewish president of Harvard or a Jewish dean at Harvard. Then a golden age occurred. Uh, Henry Rosowski becomes the provost. Um, a number of us became prominent members of the faculty. And uh, at one point when I was up to tenure, uh, one of my colleagues said, you know, you wear your Jewishness too much on the sleeve. And I said, that's who I am. If you don't want me as a Jew, you can't have me as a faculty member. So then there was the golden age. Now, anti-Semitism is worse than it has ever been, even when Jews were excluded, because it's become acceptable by the hard left to be anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist, to use anti-Zionism as a cover for anti-Semitism, to actually put Jewish students in danger, physical danger. Um, uh, uh, Jewish students are terrified to speak out on behalf of uh, Israel. I'm not talking only about Harvard. Harvard is one of the better schools. I'm talking about the University of Chicago, the University of San Francisco, Duke University, uh, you name it, uh, school, NYU, filled with anti-Semitism. A recent article uh, by a, a, a student at the NYU Law School was entitled The Anti-Semite Sitting Next to Me in Class and how anti-Semitism is accepted. You can say anything you want about Jews or Israel, but if you say 
anything suggestive of discrimination against other favorite groups, you're fired. Which is the premise of my main I, – I have a joke. I talk about uh, cancel culture. I say you can say anything – You you if you say anything against – People who are Latino, Asian, black people, gay, trans, you're finished. There's no second chance. You're done. If somebody says something negative against Jews, the worst that happens, the worst, they make them visit a Holocaust museum. At at worst, which is the stupidest idea in the world. You're taking a guy that hates Jews to a Holocaust museum. He comes out of there. Wow, that was amazing. They were on to something. They finished the job. Right. No, it's ridiculous. So. yeah. L doesn't do a good enough job on that. They sometimes are willing to take anti-Semites under their wing and teach them why not to be anti-Semites. It, it you just can't. Uh, you have to apply the same standards to anti-Semitism as we do to uh, sexism, to homophobia, to anti-Asian attitudes. We can't have a double standard that tolerates anti-Semitism, which is what's being done at many universities today. I, I recently performed for a um, an organization that works with kids, kids, uh, uh, seniors of, col- of of high school that are about to go to college. They're going to, um, they either do a year in Israel first and then go to whatever colleges that, that they got into. And it was a weekend retreat to help them learn yeah. how to deal with uh, QAnon and people who are anti-Semitic on campus and um, what to say in reaction when they say to them things against Palestine and all of that kind of stuff. And what would be your one nugget of advice to give any Jewish students starting college? Well, let me tell you, first of all, a little story about that. So the Ramaz High School, which is a prominent high school, I helped to put it on the map at Harvard, persuading the Harvard Admissions Committee to look hard at Ramaz, and a lot of Ramaz students have now gone to Harvard. So um, the head of the school asked me to please come and speak to the seniors and tell them how to deal with anti-Semitism in college. And with all due respect, I know more about that than any human being on the face of the earth. Why? Because I've spoken at more college campuses, over 100 of them, all over the world. And I really understand the kind of anti-Semitism that we have on college campuses. Suddenly, the head of school called me and said, Ramaz can't have you. You've been accused of having sex with somebody. And, and I said, but, but I didn't. I never heard of the person. I never met them. And this is what the head of the school said. Oh, I know you're innocent. I've looked at the evidence. I, I'm clear you're absolutely innocent. You've been falsely accused. But there are some machas on the board that don't want you. And so you're canceled. And so the students at Ramah, Ramaz, Ramah, no, Ramaz, Ramaz, Ramaz Ramaz High School, the students at Ramaz High School have been denied the opportunity to hear from me about how to confront uh, uh, college anti-Semitism. But your audience is not going to be denied that. So I will tell them what I would do. The first thing I would do is every single Friday, I would hand out on campus a two-sided color leaflet. Just what did Israel do for you this week? Forget about the war. Forget about the Palestinians. What did Israel high tech? do for you that made your life better this week. And every single week, Israel does something that affects the lives of college students all over. So I want students to understand the positives that no country in the history of the world has done more for humanity in less than 75 years than Israel has since its establishment in 1948. 
that no country in the world has ever had a better record of human rights when faced with the kind of threats, external and internal, that Israel faces. Just tell them the truth and don't be embarrassed about being a Zionist, about being a Jew, about being an Orthodox Jew, about wearing your tzitzis out, about wearing a kippah. You know, when I, I don't wear a kippah, but when I went to Paris and I spoke at the National Assembly, I wore a kippah. I wore a kippah because I want to show the people of Paris not to be afraid. Uh, and um, I think it's very important. If I were back teaching at a university today, I might wear a kippah just to make the point, uh, even though I'm not, you know, uh, an, uh, an, I, I'm not, I didn't follow the tradition of my parents and grandparents in Borough Park. Uh, wearing a kippah wherever I go. So I want to tell you something. My niece is a student at Harvard, and she actually grew up in Germany, but she volunteered in the Israeli army. So she's a little bit older. She's 22 now. And she just took 100 Harvard students to Israel for the first time. Um, I, I'll, I'll email you the pictures. It's incredible. It's amazing. Because for the past 25 years, I've been sending law students to Israel over the Easter vacation and going with them. Yeah, often. amazing. But this may be the first time for undergraduates, but yeah. we sent uh, for many years and, and, and almost all non-Jewish law students. And they would come back. I had uh, an African-American woman who went with me there for just the you know 10 days. So we left on a Friday, came back on a Monday uh, and she wanted to volunteer. Uh, for the Israeli army, uh, for Israeli intelligence. She was so taken uh, with Israel. You know, the best cure for anti-Semitism is Jews, and the cure for anti-Zionism is Israel. A hundred percent. Every time I brought a friend to Israel or friends to Israel, they get it. The news mm-hmm. makes sense to them. All of that, all of that stuff. Seeing Israel, being in there, seeing the Arabs live along with the Jews, and it's it. There's no, there's no substitute for it. There's no substitute for visiting Israel. And then the other thing that I wanted to ask you is if you would tell the story that um, about the block that you grew up on and about being a bandit in school to Modi, because I think you would love that. So I grew up on 48th Street between 16th and 15th Avenue, and uh, they recently renamed the street. They renamed it after the most prominent person who lived on that block. So among the people who lived in that block was Sandy Koufax. Wow. Becky Mason. Elliot Gould and me, um, and uh, who was it? There was another comedian who lived just around the corner, Buddy Hackett. Wow. Just, so it was a very funny neighborhood. So the Trivial Pursuit question is, so famous people, Koufax, Dershowitz, Gould, Jackie Mason, who did they name 48th Street after? Who? A Bubba Varebi. <laughs> it's called Bubba Va Boulevard wow. now. Ah, that's amazing. And I went back there just the other day for something. And I knocked at the door of 1558 48th Street, where I lived. And it was at the time a two and a half family house. My uncle, Hedgie, and his kids lived upstairs. My brother and I and my parents lived on the first floor. And my cousin, Buddy, who had just gotten out of the army, lived in the basement illegally. Um, And uh, so there were two and a half families that lived there. Now it was knocked down. And there are 20 families that live there. Wow. And it's called the Chassi Dominion. And the only thing that's left is the garage <laughs> on which the tennis, on, on which the ping pong table was made into a basketball hoop 
And I learned how to do my jump shot uh, in the backyard. And that that uh, that basketball hoop still remains the only remnant of my house. And guess who I guarded in Madison Square Garden in 1954? I have the program. I guarded a kid named Ralphie Lipschitz. You've heard of him. His name is Ralph, Ralph Lauren. Lauren. Wow. And, uh, uh, he was not a great ball player, but he really dressed well. He did. <laughs> So you know, on that on that note, with Jackie, oh, oh, first of all, that that's the heart of Borough Park. That is the heart yeah. of Borough Park. Yeah. So, and you really sang with the choir of Moshe Kosovitsky? I did, and Beryl Chagi. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't um, wasn't um, uh, one of the CEOs of Disney uh, sang also with his choir? I don't know that. I, I don't know. I don't know. First of all, I, Moshe Kosovitsky was it's another level, but he had three brothers. I knew David Gusevitsky also because uh, he was on the corner of 14th Avenue and 50th Street. They were the dueling Gusevitsky brothers. And then there was one in South Africa. And uh, uh, but I only knew David Gusevitsky, who had sweeter, slightly sweeter voice than Moshe. But Moshe had a I always thought their brothers were better. It's so, it, everybody, Moshe Kosovitsky was Moshe Kosovitsky. It was the, the cousin. But the right. brothers, when I was able to find tapes and clippings of the brothers, it, you know, there's a Yiddish expression, Arajukin Pich. He has like a, a raisin in his mouth. When he, when he yeah. sings, it comes out so sweet. Davis Kosovitsky was one of my, if I had to listen to, I'd rather listen to him than, than Moshe Kosovitsky. But anyway, it's just amazing that you were in, in that world live. I, I was there live and, uh, and you know who would come sometimes to listen to Slichus? Cause I, I of course sang in the choir during Slichus. During Slichus, Richard Tucker would be there in the wow. audience. Wow. Errol, Pierce, uh, and uh, uh, all kinds of that would be there. Well, I'm Jan, I, I, yeah, it's a little the, the it came. Well, uh, Jan Pierce and um, Richard Tucker were brother-in-laws. Richard Tucker was an opera, was opera, but when he sang Chazanis, it was amazing. So I want to ask you one, one question. Um, people always say, you know, said to me, and the New York Times wrote that I'm I'm the next Jackie Mason. Okay, so I want to ask you, who's the next Alan Dershowitz? What lawyer out there is? Well, how about you? I mean, uh, you know, uh, I very much wanted to be like Jackie Mason when I was a kid. My mother would always say, don't listen to that Meshuggana. <laughs> he started as a Meshuggana in the neighborhood. Uh, and uh, uh, I hope you're the next Jackie Mason. He was very, very funny. Um, I knew him as a kid, and then I got to know him again as an adult when he and I both spent winters in Miami, Miami Beach. And I would sit with him on uh, the sidewalk on Lincoln Road, and he would uh, flirt with all the young women and uh, tell them jokes. And uh, so I, I hope you are in his uh, in his tradition. You don't have his accent. Thank God. Uh, but his was the phony accent, really. It was not his real accent. Now he he overindulged, but 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 who's the next Alan Dershowitz? Who can we? Who is the next genius Jewish lawyer? <laughs> well, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of young people. Um, Joel Pollack is a great guy. Uh, he has his own podcast. Um, there, you know, um, Mitch Weber is a great young uh, lawyer. Um, there are there are a lot out there. Uh, but, you know, you never 
can emulate and you should never try to emulate any one person. You can learn from everybody. Absolutely. But I don't want there to be another Alan Dershowitz. I want there to be another, you know, very good Jewish lawyer who can help defend Israel. But uh, he should be better than Alan Dershowitz. Okay, and also I wanted to. So now you're you're. Thank God, in a, in a senior. First of all, you look like you're sixty years old. You know, when when I Google, and you sound like you're fifty. You know the joke. You know the joke of the two Jewish guys who they're eighty years old. They're very wealthy. They're retired. Every day they go to the same country club and they have their chicken soup and their pastrami sandwich. One day, Maisha walks in with a. 22-year-old, six-foot-two, gorgeous blonde model. Schleimi says, Maisha, you can't bring a prostitute into the club. No, respect, she's not a prostitute. She's my wife, your wife. Why, why would a beautiful 25-year-old model go out with an 80-year-old, bald, short, rich Jewish man like you? And Maisha says, I lied about my age. Schleimi says, you lied about your age. You told her you were 70. No, schmuck. I told her I was 90. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 uh, age is a matter of perspective. Um, I sometimes feel like I'm 90. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis stood on the uh, outside the Supreme Court one day when a beautiful woman came by. They were both almost 90 years old. And, uh, and Holmes said to Brandeis, oh, oh to be 80 again. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like that sometimes. But I'm 83. But, but I was yeah. asking you, 83 years old, if you could sit right now in front of Alan Dershowitz when he just got hired at Harvard, what would you tell him? Oh, the 25-year-old Alan Dershowitz, what would you say to him? I would say uh, do exactly what you did. Uh, live your life uh, energetically and without fear. Uh, but don't represent Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else uh, you, you you did right. Uh, look, I probably or might have been uh, a Supreme Court justice. Arthur Goldberg wanted me to be the Supreme Court justice. His other law clerk, Steve Breyer, became a Supreme Court justice. And I never wanted to live that kind of life. I never wanted to live a kind of sheltered life where I make no mistakes and could be eligible to be on the Supreme Court. I was willing to make mistakes. I've written 50 books, and I regard all of them as first drafts. Um, you know, I don't seek perfection in my books. I want to get them out there. Uh, my newest book, The Price of Principle, will be out in a month, and I have another one coming out probably in a year called uh, The Preventive State. I had another one last year uh, called The Case Against the New Censors. So I write what I think. I write an op-ed every day. I wrote an op-ed today about Elon Musk and how I appreciate his taking over uh, Twitter and that he should follow the spirit of the First Amendment in running Twitter. So, you know, I say what I think. I've been very lucky. I have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful wife of almost 40 years now. I have um, three wonderful children, two wonderful grandchildren, both in medical school. Wow. <laughs> I have two grandchildren in medical school. So I'm, I'm I'm a very satisfied man. I just wish the Epstein thing hadn't occurred. Okay, okay. And listen, we began the the podcast. Uh, I don't know how we got there right away uh, about the song Shibana Besamigdash, which is the time of Mashiach. And uh, oh, we have to ask you also. I always ask all my guests, who's your rabbi? Who's your who's your guru? Who's the person you would go to for spiritual advice or even law advice? So who's your who's your rabbi? 
So I would never want to insult any of my other rabbis, but I would say my rabbi is the one I've known the longest, and that's Yitz Greenberg. Um, Yitz Greenberg and I grew up together. He was two years ahead of me. We went to three years and went to the same schools. He went to Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, Brooklyn Talmud Academy, Brooklyn College. Then he went to Harvard and I went to Harvard. And he was the first person ever to say to me, Avi, you're not dumb like people think. You're really very smart. You're <laughs> in a different way. And he was the first person to tell me I was smart. My name was Avi in those days. And that's what my old friends still call me, Avi. Uh, Alan, I adopted when I went to college because my mother said you needed a real name. But I would say Yitz Greenberg, the rabbi that has had the most profound effect on my life from the time I first met him in Camp Eton. In 1954, wow. when he wow. cast me as Cyrano de Bergerac because I had a long nose. And I could never- <laughs> <laughs> Any last soundbite you want to tell the world? Then you want to, uh, I mean, like I, like I said, it was amazing that we began speaking about that song, Shibonabe Samedish, may the, the temple be rebuilt and we be in the messianic era, which is the goal, which is the goal. That's the goal. Um, everybody just getting along and being happy and, uh, the times well, of Mashiach, so... I'm practicing another song now. So my daughter is engaged, Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov. my last of my three children, so I get to sing the Mazinka song at the wedding. Oh. I'm practicing using Theodor Bakel's version of the Mazinka song uh, in Yiddish. And so if I, if I make it to the wedding... I get to sing the Majinka song, and my daughter, although she'll probably put her hands over her ears, uh, will have to listen uh, to me uh, melodiously invoking uh, an old song that goes back several hundred years in Poland and, and Hungary. The Mazinka song is a song you sing to your last, you, when your, your last child gets married, there's a song that's sung. It goes, Go ahead. Go ahead. Let's hear it. Oh, you, we were doing a good duet together. No, but we can't hear. We can't hear you. I'd rather hear you. They can't. We can't hear it together when we're doing a, a Zoom. But I want to hear you singing it. What's the words? I don't know the words yet. I have to practice the words. I'm just trying to get the melody down. But it's my daughter what the words mean because then she won't let me sing it (laughs) (laughs) anyway i can't thank you enough for being our guest today you are an inspiration to me you are uh um, you are you are uh, 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 a pillar of the Jewish community, and um, you have a sense of humor. I'm gonna send you some jokes. Let me know which one you want me to say at your funeral. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And thank you very much. Thank you very very much for being a thank part of the podcast today. Thank you so much. Today. It was so nice to see you oh, again. I enjoyed, it. I enjoyed it. You'll send me a recording of this. You'll send me your jokes, and then uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. God willing. Thank you very much. Thank Alan. you. Bye. Bye. Wow, I did not. I, so l- last night, I'm thinking, what questions am I going to ask? Uh-huh. And I asked people online, what should we ask Alan Dershowitz? And of course, there were all the Epstein, Epstein, Epstein stuff. And I didn't want to ask him the Epstein question directly, but I asked him in a way like, you know, 
What was the worst one case you did not you, yeah. you shouldn't have taken like a gig I shouldn't have taken yeah. this gig and he came into it and it's an, it's incredible I really hope the world doesn't remember him for the Epstein case they remember him for something for the better things he did Well the thing is is that for the same reason why he's so celebrated is the same reason he took that case that guilty people should have representation right absolutely so you know i think you can't have it both ways no um i also didn't know that he that that woman was on tape he was accused of doing this thing and then that um he has her on tape saying that she never even met him but as soon as someone says something no one ever follows up that's horrible no one ever once once they say Blank, blank, touched, blank, blank, and then even a completely guilt, completely innocent and cleared. They always remember that. It's always like, didn't he have a – wasn't he in the news for touching somebody? It's always a um, – It's really – It's a horrible society it's, it's, we, we, it we live in. It is. Because you have people who have like, you know, murdered children, gone to jail, come out and like have a whole new life. Yeah. And like that's fine. Yeah. But you get accused of something. It gets com- – that you didn't even do – and it ru- a, it's disgusting. Yeah. It really well, is. Leo's heard me listen to cantorial music. Like you, you, you hear me. I'm, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. These songs, and you see the connection. Alan Dershowitz has to cantorial music. Cantorial music has when it hits your heart, it it moves you. It's the most like. Well, you're also a trained <clears throat> cantor, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, but not you? like not like health guy. Not like I know how to do, get through the service and to put a little tune into it. And if my if I get my voice ready, it could really be, but this is like, these are cantors of the, these are like, Marcia Kosovitsky is like one of the bar. There's Rosenblatt, there's Kosovitsky, today's a health guy. There's, oh there's ones that people even, Ari Klein, one are of my favorite. Are these people all still alive? Uh, or they're from like hundreds of years no, ago? No, uh, Marcia Rosen, Ro- Ro- Rosenblatt is dead. Uh, Marcia Kosovitsky is dead. Um, the one we were talking about, Health God, is alive and, and well. And I've done shows with him and he's amazing. And But it just shows you what's the connection. You never know. You go on the podcast. Well, how am I going to connect with Alan Dershowitz? Cantorial singing. That's amazing. It was amazing. It was such a... Um, now, I want to connect with all of you with my upcoming shows. Um, <laughs> May May 12th, I'm at Gotham Comedy Club. I think it's almost sold out, but there are a few seats left. Um, June 9th, LA, Los Angeles. I'm going to be at uh, the Laugh Factory. Two shows. I hope to see everybody from that area there. Uh, anything else? Yeah. Yes. You gave, you had a, a word word of wisdom for me. Oh, you want to talk about that? I mean, we can. We have, we don't have to. We could do it a different time. I just thought it was. Um... I mean, yeah, we don't have to. We should, we should just do a whole episode on that. Even though all right, I, I so, took all it, right, just, so we'll you know... save it. We'll save it. We'll <clears throat> yeah. Save it. Okay. She took a picture of herself with her foot on the wall, like do, doing stand up with her foot like on the wall. It's not the body language that I think you want to embrace on stage. It's um. It's been noted. It's been noted. We'll talk about it. We'll All right, okay. go not on our not on our next episode. Tune in for our next. Tune episode. in for our next episode. Of what body language should Periel be doing when she's on stage? Okay. Thank you all very much for listening. Love you all. Bye.